Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. I am Bill Boer. And today, we want to ask, is this a wonderful life? Yeah, it's um, it's a good question. It's a great movie. It is a great movie. Uh, will you actually watch it this season? I may. I watch it every couple Christmases. Yeah, I, I like it too. I, you know, I don't know that I watch it every Christmas, but it is a great movie. I watch Christmas Vacation every Christmas. Um, well, my two favorite Christmas movies are Scrooged. Great movie. Bill Murray. And I like the 1950s version of um, Christmas Carol. And I can't remember. Ulster somebody plays Scrooge. But it's, they, you don't, it used to be on all the time. It's hard to find now. One of the hundreds of channels that we have. You know, one of the things I think about uh, It's a Wonderful Life, which, you know, it wasn't really a commercial success initially. It didn't That's not- so hard to believe when you think of it now. Yeah, it was not initially a commercial success. Um, is first of all, Mr. Potter wins. Modern America is Potterville. Right? <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, and, More Christmas joy. Here we go. You, you live in Potterville. Everybody. Not only not only do we live in Potterville, but Mr. Potter is running for president and leading currently in all the polls. <laughs> so I just thought I'd, I'd throw that out there. Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, and a Happy New Year, buddy. I'm holding out to Kwanzaa now. But at any rate, um, and I also think that Donna Reed is one of the most underrated beautiful people, beautiful women uh, of that time period. So I I just thought those are some scattered thoughts. But it's a great movie. It is a socially radical movie that I think is often, often missed. Um... And I think the other thing, too, is uh, the Jimmy Stewart character, George Bailey, um, is a noble pagan. I mean, if you stop and think about it, he lived the noble, sacrificial, pagan moral life. I mean, pagan in the classic virtue sense. But he runs out, just like everybody. He eventually runs out in his whole life of sacrifice for his brother, for his community, for his family, for his country. Ultimately... Uh, he finally hits a wall that he can't overcome by himself. And, you know, we often think about the flashback scenes from It's a Wonder, or what it would be like if he hadn't lived. But the truth of the matter, it's a divine act that saves his life. Uh, even a goofy one where the angel throws himself in the water. Uh, but I, I think that's the spiritual significance of the story. I think theologically right there is is uh, is kind of an interesting one. And so I, I think it's a much more multi-layered film than we often think. Yeah, and I think it's a it's it's a phenomenon. I mean that what animates the story is something all of us probably feel at some point in our lives. Probably more often when it feels like yeah, we're running out of gas, like some things that we thought were going to come together didn't quite come together and we're looking back and thinking 
did I make the right sacrifices? But maybe even when it's going well, but I think it, it, it's sort of like Socrates' notion, right, that the unexamined life is not worth living. So at some point, if you're not probably wondering, hey, like, what did it all mean, some of these choices, some of these decisions, some of the roads I took, you're probably living a relatively unreflective life. Yeah. And, you know, on some levels, um, he, he wasn't, the character isn't given a lot of ch- choice or a lot of chance for reflection because he has to react to those around him. I mean, at some levels, he is, he is a, um, he's constantly having, having to bail everybody out around him. And, um, you know, I, I don't, you know, there's, you, you know, I don't want to read too much into it, but even the best of virtue and even the best of defense mechanisms run out. Yeah, they do. I mean, these are, these are inevitable, part of what it means to live the human story. Right. So I've been reading this book. It's a short book. In fact, it's got short in the title. It's in the Oxford short series. So this one, written by Terry Eagleston. He's who, great. He's great, a literary critic. He has one of the only theor- uh, books on literary critical theory that's like a bestseller. <laughs> actually, people, he is so witty. People actually read the book. No, he is so, so but, smart and so funny. So he, this is the greatest thing. Like, How big would your ego be if you were asked to write The Meaning of Life? A very short introduction. (laughs) On some level, if you're a person that prides yourself on depth and reflection and substance, this is it. You've arrived. Yeah. Now, now, I don't remember who was it that said, but if you can't explain, I mean, no, let me rephrase that. It may have been Diogenes Allen, too, that the the greatest sign that you've really comprehended something complex and profound is that you can explain it in three sentences that are comprehensible. Absolutely. I think if I really understand a concept, I can explain it without jargon. If I experience this with teaching, if I if I can't translate it, I don't quite know it very well. Yeah. I think also, and I'm, I'm giving uh, tributes here, but uh, Dr. Virginia Burris, who's at Drew University, who I worked with one time, said, if, if uh, unclear, unclear writing is a sign of unclear thinking. I think the same thing is true with speech. Um, people who don't quite comprehend or aren't quite, aren't quite uh, coherent in what they say um, often reflect incoherent thought. Not all the time. There are some people who are very profound intellectually and can't put it into words. And there's some people that are very articulate but don't have much intellectually. They're just good at talking. We have our list, but we won't. <laughs> but, but I think one of the things that Eagleton gets at is – he says, you know, it, it's one thing to be in George Bailey's situation, which in any time period you find yourself taking stock. But he says, if you're forced to inquire on a large scale into the meaning of existence, it's a fair bet that things have come unstuck. Inquiring into the meaning of one's own existence is a different matter. Since one might claim that such self-reflection is integral to the business of living a fulfilled life. So he's saying, George Bailey, yes, but when you're when a culture, and he's thinking of sort of Western uh, industrialized, late modern culture are, are present, he, that when there's sort of no 
truths with a capital T that everybody can kind of anchor themselves on. That when everybody's got a, I forget what movie it is that uh, John Goodman says to the kid, uh, "Don't you you don't understand? Adults, we're all making it up as we go along. It doesn't look like it, but." And so it, when, as a culture, when we've all got to kind of make it up as we go along, uh, Eagleton thinks this causes some real problems, that it, 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 it's not the ideal situation. Well, I don't think that, that totally makes sense because there's no grounding. You know, I have a friend, uh, Mark Wallace, who teaches at Swarthmore College, a, a, a great scholar, uh, uh, written some really important works. And, you know, Swarthmore College is the elite of the elite. It, it uh, is, I think, often one of the hardest colleges to get into in the country. And religion majors are really a popular major there. Uh, but the vast majority of students have no religious grounding. And he says one of the phenomena that he experiences is they get angry because they're angry because they don't even have a framework in which either to rebel or to embrace, they don't. They don't have the most basic language um, um, of how to talk about why we're here, who we are, where we're going, and um, um, you know, in, you know. In many ways, we have produced generations that are the orphans of God. Yeah, and this is you know one of the things that that Eagleton says is that uh, pre-modern people were less plagued by these kind of meaning of life questions, not just because their religious beliefs or metaphysical beliefs or myth, their mythology were less contested, but also as a consequence, the social practices were less right. contested. So you kind of, you didn't have to figure out what the meaning of sex, work, joy, gender roles, chi you know, ch child and parental you know, filial piety, you don't have to walk around and think about all of those issues and try to educate yourself on them. If you're a, a reflective person, you're trying to educate, you know, it's a, that generally, now again, there, I'd rather live in the modern world. I like, um, for women's rights, penicillin and refrigeration. So, I mean, these, <laughs> but, you know, among many other things, but not necessarily, not, not necessarily that order, no, but it, it does kind of, pose an interesting, you know, it puts things into interesting relief that are we happier people? Are we more fulfilled people? Or more importantly, like, do we, are we better equipped to live the good life, a life of, uh, you know, eudonomia, right? As the ancient philosophers say, but pursuing happiness, the happiness that's fixated on the really good things, the good. Are I mean, we may have refrigeration and other things, but I, I don't know that we're as suited as some of our pre-modern counterparts to live a, a, a fulfilled, meaningful life? Well, I, I think, you, you know, I've spent a good bit of time in other world cultures. And, and I also um, was born in West Virginia and, you know, both sides of my family were poor. And, you know, it's always been an interesting contrast for me what – uh, the fruits of poverty were in, in both of my grandmothers, who, by the way, just had, both came from broken homes, which was you know, pretty unusual in the in the nineteens and the twenties. By the way, in West Virginia, did you grow up with Christmas pageants? Why do you ask? I heard that you could never have them because you could never find three wise men and a virgin. Bum bum. 
I love a nice West Virginia joke. Here's I only my, have one. You know what my favorite West Virginia joke is? No. West Virginia is the only state that used to have group discussions after Burt Reynolds films. <laughs> you have doubled my West Virginia reservoir joke. <laughs> today, right now, I've doubled, I've doubled my store. No, that's a great... Uh... But seriously, we could have a discussion about Cannonball Run. I mean, I mean yeah. I, 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 or Smoking the Bandit. Smoking the Bandit, actually, is a much uh, more profound film. But... Um, but the interesting thing is, is I was, I, I reflected, um, there was a kind of bitterness uh, in my one grandmother uh, whose whole life was hard financially. And, um, and yet my other grandmother was a saint, which she comes up frequently in my conversations, uh, probably here as well as in sermons and such. And um, part of it was, I think, uh, both believed one really had Jesus as her friend and that transformed her. But I remember uh, doing a medical clinic uh, at a small, uh, well, not super small, but a, a Mayan village in Guatemala. And 60 to 70% of the people who came in for help, their number one complaint was their nerves, um, which was, was their way of, there's just anxiety. And the, the fact that you're living on the poverty level or under the poverty level always creates a kind of anxiety. So on one level, when you think in the history of the human race, how precarious existence was for large segments of the, of the population. Um, you know, I, I have to say that I, you can't, you know, it's not a wonderful life if you're constantly afraid of whether or not you're going to exist or not. Now, what's interesting is that in 21st century America, and there were too many hungry people. Uh, I One of the places I work um, gives out 30,000 meals a year. Wow. Uh, uh, and this is, uh, you know, and right across, you know, one side of the track is affluent, the other isn't. So hunger is a, a real issue in this country. But I'm still kind of curious, I'm curious, and I, you know, and I think this gets back to Eagleton's point and yours, why is there so much anxiety and unhappiness when the vast majority of us are not um, are not worried about where our next meal is going to come from. Yeah, well, this is it's which interesting because I think this is now. Gosh, I'm going to forget the guy's name, but he Tim Ferriss just had him on his podcast, and he's a guy who writes basically books about practical philosophy. I mean, one of his first oh, right. books yeah. was an essay on love. He wrote a very well-selling book called "How Proust Can Change Your Life." Uh, he's, a, he's of Indian descent. Right? Yeah, yeah, in England, in, in, a British national, but right. I think his parents were Indian or Pakistani immigrants. Um, so he says, you know, yeah, like the, we joke about that, you know, there's the Twitter feed, first world problems. Right. Like, oh, no, I came home and my roommate used my Netflix account to watch Transformers 1, 2, and 3, and now my algorithm's messed up. Like, but he said, you know, in all <laughs> seriousness, for a good chunk of the world that live in the industrialized West – you there is tremendous anxiety mostly around lo love relationships connection work uh, and you know finding it if it's meaningful if it and around just again a sense of that all connects and there's meaning so like it's it's almost like the anxiety just displaces right to a different to a different spot like it's once you get off Maslow's hierarchy of needs it, it, it's not like it, it's a different kind of anxiety but yeah it kind of it, it 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 looks and feels a different way. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting. Um, I think you can read 
the Hebrew prophets. I mean, during this time of Advent, if your church is, um, reads the lectionary or, or taps into the Hebrew scriptures, often, you know, this is a season where we read, you know, different prophets. And um, you know, every, every prophetic reading, this, this cycle, has, has, could be read as a product of extreme anxiety of what's going on around them. Uh, and uh, certainly Zephaniah was and Micah this week. And, you know, there's a sense where the biblical, the biblical faith in many ways is, is born out of um, this kind of almost insane call for peace and hope and joy in the midst of incredibly anxiety-ridden moments. I mean, I, you know, you stop and think about Mary. Uh, you know, I, I, I see I'm not a big angel fan. I, I don't ever really want to see angels because they're not these nice angels. It's certainly not the bum, you know, the kind of the bungling, happy, you know, crazy uncle that's in It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, these are, these are fire-breathing mythological monsters that are, that are angels. And if one showed up in your bedroom and you're a teenage girl, uh, you would be greatly distressed of what they had to say. Yeah, well. there's a show on sci-fi. I think is it called Legion or something. It's all about this. It's a post-apocalyptic thing where the angels are kind of the, the warring angels and the humans are caught in between. And yeah, they're free, it's pretty awesome. Well, we have all these kind of wonderful um, Renaissance pictures of the angels, but if you actually read the mythological background in the intertestament period where they arise from, uh, they're not. They're not. Great. I think they're closer to uh, to the Death Angel in Indiana Jones. I think that's that's actually a more accurate accurate portrayal of where the idea of angels comes from. Yeah. Well, it's here's what's interesting too. When you you look back, one of Eagleton's points is that that if if the question about the meaning of life, right, is yeah. less is is not that interesting for say someone pre modern in ancient Israel or something. He thinks it's the way we would ask it. He think, or the way it's been asked in the modern West. He thinks that the postmodern kind of moment finds it equally uninteresting. I think that's true. So that that in early modern thought, even though the the locus for meaning is changing, so around you know Judeo Christian biblical God revelation, sort of married to some insights from classical philosophy, that might erode. But people, you know, Descartes sits in an oven allegedly trying to figure out what he can. I mean, people are. There's some ferocious attempt at 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 finding new means to figure out in, in a sort of enlightenment, post enlightenment, you know, critical rationality sort of fashion to figure out what's the meaning of life with a capital L. Well, you know, it's also too the flourishing of Greek philosophy, um, both you know the big three and those that came after him really was a was a reflection response to the collapsing of their culture. Yeah, yeah. So he says actually that, um, this is great, this is just like, it's dense prose, but he says, in the pragmatist streetwise climate of advanced postmodern capitalism, with its skepticism of big pictures and grand narratives, it is hard-nosed disenchant, it's hard-nosed disenchantment with the metaphysical, with the metaphysical life is one among a whole series of discredited totalities. We are invited to think small rather than big, ironically at just the point when some of those out to destroy Western civilization are doing exactly the opposite. In the conflict between Western capitalism and radical Islam, 
a paucity of belief squares up to an excess of it. So, I mean, that needs to be unpacked, but in reality, uh, we're worrying about our lattes while ISIS is trying to usher in the end of the world. Yeah, and you might not be worrying about your lattes. You might be coming to grips with what the Hebrew prophets and their quest for peace and shalom in the midst of the you know the the foundations crumbling but that's like your latte you know and that, and 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 the, and the other thing might be you know breaking bad for somebody or the perfection of their body or gardening so all the none of these things right. are they're all sort of at the same level of like you know your life's meaning is kind of a project you're kind of a palette and it's yeah so so when when we're kind of going into sort of isolated private consumer pods to figure out I mean, that ISIS is actually trying to, you know, create, I use this term excessive belief, but they're trying to create a union of politics, culture, religious belief, and military expansion. But didn't Michael Foucault say that really you can't think of modern and postmodern sequentially, but there's always, they're always at each other. There's always, you know, there may be a minority movement, there are always Groups, the grand narrative is always going against the smaller narrative. Yeah, yeah, I've heard it described as like you could think of like the modern story. When we think of modernity, post-Enlightenment modernity, we think of it as rationalism, right? As, but equal and ultimate as its animating spirit is romanticism. And so you you it's almost like sometimes it's a pendulum swing. And what people call postmodern might just be hyper-romanticism on steroids. Yeah. So I guess, you know, this is this has been, I think, an important discussion. It it could be a little esoteric for folks. So give me a couple of takeaways about is this a wonderful life? Yeah, I think that th- th- it's it's interesting. Is there a way to um celebrate the reality of freedom, right, without being without it being tied to like consumerism. So like, I actually think sometimes when we think I'm free, we, we interpret that in a, in a sense of like, okay, I've got more choices. Go to the cereal aisle. I guarantee you, like you don't feel more free. Like there's like, you know, like more choices often make us feel more constrained. So on one level, I think that what freedom is, I think Robert Jensen, great Lutheran theologian said that, you know, where what the Apostle Paul calls the sting of the law comes is when what we ought to do and what we want to do when there's a big gap, right? Really, real freedom is when we will the good. Like Augustine says, God, you know, command what you will, then give me the grace right. to will what you can command. When, when our pursuit of the good is not from external constraint, but spontaneous internal freedom, when, when it's something that we love doing, which is for most of us hard. It's like Romans 7. I think Paul says, hey, look, the reality of the spiritual existential life, a lot of days I get up, you know, by 9 o'clock, the things I don't want to do, I'm doing, and the things I want to do, I just can't muster right. up the, the, the gumption to, you know, to go there. But at, at the best, I mean, I think cultivating a graced life where, where we come to live in love more in true freedom, Yeah, I think makes life meaningful at the practical level, even if it's, even if it 
it still becomes philosophically tough to answer the questions with a capital T. Well, you know, I, I, a couple of thoughts I have. First of all, um, you know, a couple of podcasts ago, we talked about the Benedict option. And, you know, a lot of the ascetic movement had the insight, the less I have, the more free I am. Mm-hmm. You know, the other thing I think is heaven uh, will be pure freedom. And, but we won't ever want to choose the contrary from the good. In other words, we will be, we'll perfectly and freely always choose the good. Yeah, God is the most free being in the universe and the least arbitrary. Yeah, and I think that's what heaven is. Uh, you know, uh, it's, there's that great scene in, um, in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce where one of the discussions is a theologian has come from hell and he's interacting with another theologian who's in heaven. And the theologian from hell is just totally disgusted that they don't have debates about what is truth in heaven. Uh, but the heaven says, but we... But we, we gaze on the truth and we commune with the truth. <laughs> and the, the guy from heaven, what, what fun is that? There's no challenge in that. We have given up our human, our human, you know, the great human conquest, you know, and uh, I'm misquoting it. But any, and of course, the theologian from hell chooses to go back to hell where he has quite a nice theological society in hell. And I'm, I think that society is only growing in numbers. There you go. I, you know, we, you know, we began with Christmas movies. And maybe we could conclude with a midwinter's movie. I think Groundhog Day is one of <laughs> yeah, the most movie. profound. It's funny because Harold Ramis, uh, you know, may rest in peace. Uh, he, I watched like the director's cut segments from that film. I think it was the director's cut. And he says people from every religious and philosophical tradition wrote him. Fundamentalist Christians, nuns, Buddhists, like a spirit. Do you capture our religion's yeah. view? <laughs> but, but, you know, Bill Murray, you know, he finds he's this kind of arrogant, self-absorbed yeah. weatherman. And there's this sort of, you know, and he's caught up in this eternal day, repeating, repeating Groundhog Day and Punxsutawney, which I've been to Punxsutawney for Groundhog's Day. It's awesome. You actually were there? Yeah, for, uh, yeah, it's away. great. It's great. I've been through there, but not on It's the, fun. It's, on very, it's, very, it's very cold usually, but it's fun. Uh, and it's just like that. I mean, it's <laughs> the whole thing. It's great. But, you know, he kind of at first – just like uses this time for, you know, reckless sort of James Dean rebel that I cause does all these arbitrations. Right. My favorite part is when he's doing all these chase scenes with the cops trying to kill himself and he's letting the the groundhog drive. Check your mirrors, check your mirrors. Don't drive angry. Don't drive angry. <laughs> <laughs> but then he goes, so he ties to the sort of like that kind of reckless life. Then he tries the aesthetic. Right. Uh, and so his relationship with the love interest in the film is aesthetic. It's not really love, though. It's pursuit of romance for right. charm. For right. Then when he really, his real, he breaks the cycle when he really gives of himself right. and lives a life of love and, and really comes to love the, the people around him. And through giving himself in love, he's able to receive love. So maybe what makes it a wonderful life right now in Advent and with Christmas upon us and Groundhog's Day a few months, a few <laughs> a few months. Is that we live in, in the shadow of the incarnation where God thought this life and world were so wonderful that He'd unite with it in the incarnation. You know, and maybe it doesn't matter so much if we see our shadow or the shadow of things past or things to come, as long as we can see His shadow. 
sure what the balance held. I touched my belly overwhelmed by what I had been chosen to perform. But then an angel came one day, told me to kneel down and pray. For unto me a man child would be born. Oh, this crazy circumstance. I knew his life deserved a chance. But everybody told me to be smart. Look at your career, they said. Lauren, baby, use your head. But instead I chose to use my heart. Now the joy of my world is inside. Choosing me to come through 